Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. We're back, and our guest is also back. He's been here twice before, right? This is your third appearance. Uh, you, yeah, I believe so. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're, <laughs> you're <laughs> you can fine. You, the again if you want. No, I, 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 we're doing this a little bit differently than we, the last time you were on, so I, you don't need to wait for your name to be spoken. But it is, okay. <laughs> it is Jay Carlos Menjavar of the Dial F for Film podcast. So, how are you doing? How have you been? It's been a, a couple of weeks, I think, since we talked. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing great. I've uh, slowly been trying to go back into doing my podcast. Uh, it's definitely different from what it was last year. I'm watching less movies, but that's that's on purpose. I'm sort of trying to uh, make it less of an arduous job every week. So it's it's been nice, and I've just been, I've just been watching a lot of movies and catching up on stuff. So that's very exciting for me, and I'm off to a really good cinematic uh, 2021. Yeah, same here. I haven't been watching as many movies as people might think, considering, mm -hmm. you know, well, both of us, we have movie podcasts. And, yeah. But I am watching pretty good quality. Like the stuff I've been watching this year has been pretty great. That's great. Is, is there anything that's that's that stands out that you've watched so far this year that you'd recommend? That's oh. maybe not outside the podcast. Oh, yeah. Outside the podcast. Um, I watched this uh, Giallo film called The Bloodstained Butterfly that was more of a police procedural than like a gloved killer movie but really fantastic like uh, just really well paced really well put together it's on the arrow app you know we both have that yeah uh, i would recommend nice. that one nice i gotta check that out how about you anything good um i i've been trying to catch up with uh, a ton of movies and i've sort of fallen in like the 60s and 70s era of filmmaking and i recently watched Cooley high I don't know. Oh, I've never seen, seen it. Oh, well, it's it's uh it's free on YouTube. Uh I think it's with ads, but it's free on there. The quality is actually really good and uh I really enjoyed it. It was a very cool uh coming coming of age uh story about high school kids growing up in Chicago. It's it's a really funny movie and it's really heartbreaking at times as well. But I had a lot of fun with it, and I wasn't I wasn't expecting much when, when I watched it. But it's something that I've always wanted to see and that I've known about for a while, and it's just finally finally getting to it and sitting down. Really enjoyed it. And then I also watched uh, Caged Heat last night, Jonathan uh, Demi's first oh, film, yeah. and that was a lot of fun too. Oh, yeah. Uh, both of those are actually on my list. That it's good to hear they were that you enjoyed them. I've I've been meaning to get to both of those. Yeah, it's interesting that I, I've seen other like uh, women in prison films. And for this being Demi's first film, you can there are like glimpses of like of like genius, I would say, I guess, from from him, like even early on. 
in the, like what is obviously an exploitation movie and it's there's some it's something that's lacking in some of the other ones which are just trying to be fun exploitation movies but i think there's more to that in caged heat and it was just really interesting watching it because it was like on the border of being like uh, like a like it could have been a bigger like hollywood mainstream movie but it's like a b movie it's just like in that in between where it could have gone either way and i think it's it's a pretty cool balance of that yeah that i've been meaning to check that out too i really like that like that 70s roger corman school yeah a lot of trash but also people could do whatever <laughs> they wanted so every once in a while you'd get like a real genius working in there and more often than not yeah. I think he had some really a really good eye for talent Mm -hmm. Yeah, like even like uh, I was thinking about Peter Bogdanovich and his first film Targets. And like, that's just like a perfect example of what you can do with like Roger Corman gives you an assignment. You have to have Karloff in your movie and he has to be in it at least this amount of time and you have to use footage from the terror. And then Bogdanovich just makes a movie around all of that. And it's such a great movie too. Yeah, Targets is a great movie. It is the best thing to come out of the terror God, the terror. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've tried to watch it, but it's almost <laughs> unwatchable. Yeah, I was uh I was looking at some of like the stuff and I I think it had mentioned, I forgot who it mentioned as director. And I and I was like, I didn't know that he directed that. And then I looked it up and there were six like directors on there. I, I think ultimately Corman is, is attributed as director, but Nicholson shot like one day, like the final day, and then a bunch of other people also helped out with shooting, which is like really weird. And it makes sense why the movie is the way it is. Yeah, that's one of those where they really, they just had an extra week on the castle they had rented. Yeah. And they had Boris Karloff. And so they they really just made it up as they went along. They didn't have a script to begin with. And it it it's, it's something I want to like because that's kind of like, I, I like that kind of story. Sometimes you can get something good out mm -hmm. of it. But that, yeah. That movie is just so boring and it really is yeah so i've i've got one little this is this is kind of an update for the listener like it's, you're not really going to care at all because you won't have heard the episode yet but last week's episode was uh all food related i watched tom popo and big night and in our discussion i had made a very shocking admission on the podcast which is i have never ever had ramen that didn't come with a little pouch for the seasoning like all I've had is like Mar the top ramen or the marachan is the make it on your oven stuff. And I'm here in California. I've been here for six and a half years, almost seven years now. There's lots of great ramen restaurants around. I know a lot of people who love ramen. I've just never, never done it. And last night we ordered ramen. I just want to let anybody who cares know I finally tried ramen and it was delicious. <laughs> My God, that's incredible. <laughs> I love ramen so much. It's so... I, I just assume everyone had, you know, tried ramen at least well, once. <laughs> my memory of it is that, I mean, I know there's ramen restaurants in Alaska and there's more now, but my memory of it is, is that it's only been in the last 10 years that I've been aware of ramen as an actual real dish. <laughs> like all of my, <laughs> all of my life, I've only known ramen as the stuff that comes in the little packets. You get yeah. five for a dollar. <laughs> and wow. And I knew it was based on a real dish in Japan. I knew it was kind of like a, a cheap bastardized version of that. But mm -hmm. also it kind of surprised me coming down here how popular ramen restaurants are. Like I just didn't have that awareness in Alaska. And I don't know why like we waited so long. Part of it is we don't have a car and we didn't want to get like 
food to go and then you get mushy noodles. I was not aware the noodles come separately when you order. <laughs> so yeah. my, my person I was talking to last night, the guest I was talking to last week, sorry, she said that the, the uh, noodles come separate and it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and I went out and I told my partner and we like immediately, as soon as we were able, just ordered uh, from a place near us. That's awesome, man. It's delicious. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad you like that. I love ramen so much. It's such, like, I wish I could have it all the time. And then I recently, like, actually started, like, making ramen at home. Like, I bought all the ingredients to make the broth and stuff. And it came out pretty good. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was, I, like, it was really exciting to do because I had never thought about, like, I really want ramen. But I can't really afford to go out to get ramen. But I can get everything and make it myself. Okay, so... um. Let's see, we've got our, uh, we've got our theme here and this little theme on the, on the note says heaven and hell. So let's take a little break. It'll only just be a minute or two. You'll get, you'll get to hear a little bit of the trailer and then we'll be back. We'll be talking about one of our movies. Goku. After he and his friend accidentally kill a man in a hit-and-run car accident, theology student Shiro finds his life becoming more surreal and nightmarish, culminating in a trip to literal hell. Now, there's a lot more incidents within the movie, a lot of more plot, a lot of weirdness, and kind of like weird audio-visual tricks, but recounting now in a linear way is maybe something to which I'm, I'm not quite up to that task. So, <laughs> How about we just dive right in? Now, I know I had seen this movie before. I I saw it. I, I was probably running through all the Criterions. Maybe I saw it on Hulu or I just, you know, I used to follow the Criterion collection a, a lot more closely and I would try to watch everything that was in the collection. So I'd seen it before and I remember liking it, but it, it, it didn't it didn't quite blow me away. And this time I watched it, I remembered the general vibe. I remembered um, Tamura. The, how weird it was and like how spooky he was all the time. Yeah. I did not remember how extreme the end of this movie becomes. <laughs> this movie for 1960 is incredibly nightmarish. Like people talk about the R rating of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that that movie like kind of almost got an X and there's no blood in that movie. This movie is much bloodier and in a way much more perverse than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. It's shocking how far this movie goes. But um, before we get into that, what, what's your history? You chose this movie. So I'm assuming this is, uh, this is a movie you enjoy, you've seen before. 
Yeah, but I would say enjoy is probably the wrong word. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I saw it maybe like two years ago the first time. Um, it, it was always, I think it was around the time the new Beverly was doing uh, October of whatever that year was. They were doing, uh, they were showing a lot of Japanese horror and I, I missed a lot of those screenings. So I, I would go on, uh, I would write the title down. I would watch them on Criterion uh on Criterion Channel, if they were still the thing or if it was on Filmstruck, can't remember, but I would watch them on there. And, and, and Jokoku was one of the ones that I believe they showed. Uh, and I didn't know much about the film. And why, when I watched it, I was really shaken by, by the movie by the end of it. And I knew very little about the movie, but I do remember enjoying it then. I thought it was a very interesting look at the afterlife. And I, I was a little excited to rewatch it just to see if it if it had the same effect as it did that first time. Wow, yeah. I I gotta say, I wish I had seen this movie in a theater. Because yeah. well, I mean, to be completely honest, I started watching this last night. I was really, really tired, but I wanted to get through the movie and I I found it very hard to pay attention to. I ended up falling asleep. I started over this morning, so I did like watch the entire movie. I didn't doze off for any of it. But even with sleep, this movie is is hard to follow. It, it is it is almost dauntingly incoherent at times. Like it's almost it, it's almost kind of like it's almost rubbing your face in it, or or kind of taking joy in the fact that you're not going to understand exactly what's going on all the time. And things become more clear at the end, but then it also ends on a, a very <laughs> mysterious moment that I'm not entirely sure what it signifies. But yeah, like things just like Tamura, I mentioned, he just every time he appears, he never walks into a scene. It's just the camera does a quick cut and he's suddenly there and the characters didn't see him show up. And he literally is just like popping into frame at times. And it's always like, it's always creepy. I don't understand his character, if he's supposed to be a real person or a demon. I guess at the end, we're supposed to realize he's a real person, but he seems to have supernatural powers and intelligence as well. Yeah, I agree. This movie, I didn't realize that it is kind of confusing. <laughs> a little hard to follow at times. And I thought I understood the, uh, like the, the story. I, I guess I understand the basic elements of the story, but there's things that I don't get. Like, uh, what's the name of that character? Uh, his friend to what is it? Uh, Tamura, I believe. T yeah, Tamura. Yeah, I totally agree. There are moments where he like pops up from like under the frame, or you know, they cut back and he's he was there the whole time, but no, no one noticed them. And then I wasn't sure if only um, if if only the main character uh, could see him, and other people couldn't. There was a scene where he's uh, talking to to I think it's his girlfriend and he pops up and the girlfriend just looks in where Tamara is, looks at the, uh, I forget the main character's name, but looks at him and then she leaves. And there is like no explanation as to did she see someone or just think he was being a weirdo and like talking to himself? Well, he he has interactions with the professor, uh, Mr. Yajima. Yeah. He, he has, he does talk to him. He talks to other characters, but he shows up like there's a scene where he's out on the middle, like in the middle of nowhere and there's train tracks and we can see all around and suddenly Tamura pops up and he's always got like, kind of like whitish face paint. He's lit like he's like from below, like really spooky. Yeah. 
he also is always carrying a rose or a rose appears just before he does. Like the first time we see him, uh, Shiro is in class watching a lecture on theology and a, not a rose, is it? It's a, it's a big red flower, uh, falls down on his, just falls out of nowhere onto his open book and he's startled and he looks over and Tamura's sitting there like he's always been in the class, but we, we've seen the wide shot. He hasn't been there. He, he wasn't there. Yeah. See, I, I thought that maybe like Tamura was supposed to represent like the f- driving force that drives the characters specifically Shiro, uh, the main character uh, to do bad things. And I, he's ca- kind of represented like, kind of like that devil on your shoulders idea but it was just like there was no good in this world to contrast it from that. And it was varying degrees of, of just deception and murder. And I thought that this character, his presence there was kind of causing this imbalance in this world where all these like secrets from the past came to light. Um, and I, I mean, that's really what the, the movie is about, about like the secrets that just come to light from, from people's past that they those individuals have to carry with them um, and, and it becomes their burden. But in this movie, uh, some of the characters have to b- bring those burdens to light because they contain things like murder uh, or, you know, killing of other people. And it was such a, his character was so interesting because for the most of the movie, I didn't think that was a real person tomorrow. Yeah. Same. And, yeah. And it was like, in, in the scene you describe, it's, you see, you see a wide shot, and he uh, Shiro's alone, and then he appears, and he's there. It's so the movie, like right off the bat, really tries to like throw you off and make you feel unsure of this world uh, that's happening in the movie. Yeah, there's a lot of because he his appearance is almost always accompanied by a very loud engine rev on the on the soundtrack. Right, like it might be a, it might be a train going by, but there. There's like a mechanical sound that appears every time he does. And he he doesn't seem like a real person to the point where, even though this is my second time watching it, I, I thought the revelation was going to be that they were all in hell the entire time. Yeah. And and it turns out, no, that they're not. That they, they're all like, every character in this movie is leading towards being in hell. But for most of the movie, we're supposed to realize that this is real life or we're supposed, I guess we're supposed to, understand that it's real life but it's so it's so oddly lit it, it like this the staging in this is really bizarre where the cameras are often from below people or they're at weird angles yeah uh, one other thing that he does all the time is he has like one for, focus of light in the scene and everything else is darkness and the characters are only visible when they're passing by that light like whether it's an open doorway or a, a chandelier or, or maybe you'll have two characters laying next to each other, but you don't see anything of the room. You just see the circle of light around where each character is. Everything just looks artificial. Like, like it looks almost like it's a play, but also it, it, it really did make me think like, no, they're, they're already in hell. Everybody in this movie is awful, except for Yukiko and Sachiko, who are both played by the same actress. They're, yeah. I think, the only symbols of purity in this movie. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why, like... I guess like the whole time we never really realized that that's what they were supposed to represent. And I think that's what the ending in that movie is like the final like shot. And, but it, it's so, because the movie's so dark and like what you're describing, even the cinematography is dark. Like the, 
like what you're describing is every almost not every scene but a, a lot of the scenes are lit in this really like you can't see what's in the background it's usually the focus of the the characters um there's almost no world around them and they're so like mired in 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 their own immorality that it's hard to really pinpoint where they actually are and it's supposed i guess it's supposed to look like uh, like they're in some sort of like immoral uh, abyss that's how it looks like it's the best way that i i can describe it because it just looks so weird and even the scenes that do have more lighting where you can see the the production design is lit in a really strange way where it, it seems dreamlike like there's a lot of orange light that's sort of diffused and it's just a really weird looking movie. It, it is. And to, to kind of like go back what you were talking about earlier and we, we kind of get, but Tamura being kind of a, not seeming like he's a real person and he being the driving force behind everything, it, it does definitely seem, I, I thought at first that this was going to be kind of about the corruption of Shiro that, mm -hmm. Tamura, because Tamura is the one that does everything bad and just drags Shiro along. Like when, when they hit that guy, they hit a Yakuza who's drunk walking in the middle of the street. And then Tamura is driving and just drives away. And Shiro wants to stop, but Tamura is the one that convinces them not to. All of the bad stuff is done by Tamura. The worst you can say about Shiro is that he doesn't immediately go to the police. And after that, Yukiko, his fiance convinces him to go to the police and it's on the way to the police that the car crashes and Yukiko is killed. And there's a moment there as well, which leads me to think like Tomura is not real or not a real person in that the driver of the cab they're in just for a split second becomes Tomura. Yeah. And Shiro notices it, but nobody else does. And it's, it, it's there and gone. But then right after that, the car crashes and Yuk Yukiko is killed. Yeah, that that part to me was really confusing. <laughs> like the, the the what happens in all of that. Yeah, because does doesn't she come back later in the movie? Well, Yukiko does, but she comes back as Sachiko. Like it's the same actress. Yeah, because he falls in love with her immediately because she looks exactly like Yukiko, but it's supposed to be a different character. the The worst thing you can say about this character of Shiro, the worst thing he does in the entire movie until maybe the end, is. He, he's a little wishy-washy and doesn't go to the police about Tamura. And then after his fiance is killed, he goes out and gets really drunk and ends up sleeping with this other woman. Mm -hmm. and, and that's like in the grand scheme of things, like, so what? <laughs> like, yeah. That's not, that's not a sin. You, you could be like, Oh, that your, your girlfriend just died, but also like he's mentally pretty fucked up and very drunk. Yeah. You can forgive that sort of human foible versus what Tamura does with killing what even Mr. Yajima had done when he, he killed somebody during the war. Like a lot of the sins of people in this seem like they're not bad, but Tamura is making them worse. And it turns out to not actually be about his corruption or it, it, maybe it is, but it's so, it's kind of so abstracted and just focuses on the miserable aspects of everybody's lives and how, extreme things get once they go to hell for like the last half hour of this movie yeah no I, I i agree with that it does seem like uh, some of them are some of the things that some of the characters and do in the do in their past seems questionable but not to the point of like eternal damnation 
there are some things like the doctor that misdiagnoses misdiagnoses patients, which seems really bad, <laughs> and just allows people to, to to die instead of you know doing what he's supposed to and 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 uh, fixing people and and helping them live. But there are some things in, that that are extremes and. Um, there, like, it almost seems like it's focusing on our ability to be corrupt, and it doesn't matter where or how it happened and what the circum circumstances were, that everyone has it in them to turn to doing something that is against, you know, what is deemed in a society as irreprehensible. Uh, so, like, you know, you you have your a lot of a lot of the movie does deal with actual death. And I feel like a lot of the characters in this movie are dying uh, either by their own hand or by someone else's, but there is a lot of death uh, leading up to, to the scenes in hell. And it just seems that no one is safe. Like everyone's damned and there are a select few. And in this case, it's the, uh, the two female characters that, that, that can be considered sort of victims of this really dark and horrendous world of just people being shitty to each other, which is like the whole movie is set uh, within like a small community and it's everyone against everyone. There really are, it seems like there are no friendships. Well, I mean, first of all, to talk about that small community, there's some revelations we get later in the movie yeah. about how characters are connected to each other that seem like in, an, in a normal movie, you would consider them too outrageous. It would be too coincidental. It would just be like, oh, it's just a writer is making all these characters related. But in this movie, because of how surreal everything else is, it, it just lent credence to what I was thinking that they were in hell the entire time. Uh, especially the relationship. Okay, so I, just to, to get on this track to bring it around. So the character of Sachiko, who is basically Yukiko, it's, it's the same actress, different character. Shiro goes home to visit his dying mother and meets Sachiko, who lives next door with her painter father. And they start to have kind of a chaste relationship. Like they, they clearly are falling in love with each other, but Shiro is still mentally like screwed up and he's not really, really there for it. But it turns out later that they're related because the mother had an affair with the painter. And so Shiro is the painter's son and that makes Sachiko his sister. And the way it's presented, it's such a bizarre coincidence. It doesn't seem realistic at all, but it just made me think like, well, they're all in hell and <laughs> hell has brought them together to torment each other. Yeah. Shiro in this movie, he doesn't, like I keep saying, he doesn't necessarily do anything very bad. He's, he's messed up. He's fallible, of course. He's not the greatest person in the world, but he isn't actively sinning. He's around multiple deaths, and yet they all aren't really his fault. Like that one woman, he's so distraught that he killed the woman by throwing her off the bridge, but he didn't. Yeah. She, he like she stumbled and fell. It was her own fault. And I, I think he he kills Tamura, which is like, I mean, if anybody in this movie deserves it, other than Tamura, it's probably the guy who runs the old folks' home and feeds the old people poisoned fish. Poisoned fish. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like the this bodies movie, pile up in this movie. Yeah, it, it's it's not really going to make you super depressed, but this movie is it, it it wallows in miserabilism. The Shiro character, and it might just be my own theology as like an atheist, 
in, is that in my own disbelief in the the you know normal constructs of heaven and hell that I want to keep seeing these as metaphors. I wanted to see hell as a metaphor for his guilt because he is clearly racked with guilt over everything that's happening, whether or not it's completely his fault. Yeah. And so I was like, well, these people are going to be punished for things because they are punishing themselves. And then even Mr. Yajima, you find out his big sin was he killed another person while they were like dying of dehydration in the, in, I think it's in the Philippines. I, and maybe it doesn't say, but they're, they're in war. They're in the war and oh, Malaya. That's what they say it is. Sorry. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I was trying to remember that Malaya. So he kills another soldier, one of his comrades while they're in Malaya and they're both dying of dehydration and there's only one canteen left. And in a struggle for the canteen, he kills the other person and he's been living with his guilt. And you want to think like, okay, he killed somebody, but also the situations that they're in, in war, they're both dying and probably more than a little crazy. It, it, maybe you can't, maybe you can't forgive it, but you can also say like that he's not like he's trying to survive <laughs> yeah this isn't this isn't killing somebody in cold blood yeah this isn't this isn't just a random killing this is this was very i mean there were extenuating circumstances and of course yeah and so i'm just saying that these people seem to be seem to be receiving punishment far greater than what they did almost all of them except for the guy Maybe the doctor and the guy who runs the old folks home, those two <laughs> were yeah. probably deserved to be in hell there. <laughs> um, but everybody else is suffering and doesn't seem to really deserve it. And so I was thinking like, they're just doing them to, to the self. There, there has to be a metaphorical angle to this. And I guess I don't know if the movie wants you to think that because they seem to be literally in hell. <laughs> they're being dismembered. But then there's also the scene where it shows the tortures that they're going to go through and then it shows the people and they get, they get slashed or they get their teeth knocked out or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and then it quickly cuts and they're just standing there. Like nothing has happened to them. They're not reacting at all. They're just standing there very still and placid that I was thinking like, okay, are these actually th things that are happening or are they just doing this to them in their minds? Like it seems like hell literally exists in this movie, but I also couldn't wrap my head around if that was completely real or not. Yeah, I, the I think this movie. I'm not, and I could be totally wrong about this. I, it has, I think, it like it's trying to do two different things, and it's two different like uh, literary texts that it's sort of influenced by. The first part being, I think, uh, Jean Paul Sartre's No Exit, because it does feel a lot like the hell on Earth and the idea of hell as other people, and I feel like that's what's going on through the first part of the movie. And then when we actually get to hell, that's more of like, it's vivid in the way that Dante's Inferno is vivid in that journey. And, and just some of the ideas of like the different rings of hell and the different uh, areas for different types of sins and the punishment usually to fit that sin. And the fact that this is going on for, uh, for eternity and there's a point in the movie where uh, everyone in that house uh, at that anniversary dies and the clock stops and then it cuts to the scenes from hell. And then when that said, because this is this is about there's 40 minutes left, I think, around that time during this part. And then it comes back towards the end of the movie when it's almost done. So it's almost 40 minutes of being in hell. And then the clock starts running again. So, like, I think that portion is so opposed, like all of that misery that we saw happen in between you know, a shift of time 
between a second and another second, just that's, I think it's trying to magnify that idea of hell of it's that times infinity, like it's not going to stop. And it does seem weird that, that a lot of the times they don't have reactions to things that happen to them, but they are going to continue happening to them. And it's like this sort of like feeling the same pain over and over nonstop and just being regenerated just to be taken down once again. So it's a weird movie that I feel in, in a way it, and I, and I, I hate saying this because I feel like I've said this before about other movies, but it does feel like a, not a dream, but a nightmare. And it may be the only thing that ever did happen in this movie was that first hit and run. And because Shiro doesn't seem to be a bad person and he didn't actually kill this guy, maybe he's just, he has, he goes to bed that night and he has his nightmare from uh, all the, the guilt he would feel in his uh, real life and to all the death that it would lead. And then, you know, the afterlife, which have being punished for that in hell. And it's, I mean, there are things, it, it, the movie's so detailed that it's possible. It's not even a dream because all these other stories are focused, are focused in the story as well. But the whole entire movie just, like you said, does feel like hell. And it's just two different takes on that, uh, hell on earth and then actual hell, which is what I think this, why I think this movie is interesting. Because I, I, I don't think after the second watch that I'm done with this movie, because I feel like there is more that I need to figure out about Jigoku. Yeah, it definitely is a movie that I want to revisit. Partially because that ending, that 40 minutes is such, like, <laughs> it, it really just keeps topping itself in terms of how surreal it looks, how bloody, like, un, it's like surprisingly bloody. Yeah. It is. And it, it's like, it's almost assaulting your senses. Mm -hmm. So I will want to go back to it, but it, it is a movie that, like I said, it, it wallows in miserableism, but it doesn't make you depressed. And I mean that, what I mean by that is everything that happens in this movie is bad <laughs> yeah. and to the point where you stop getting, you can't get emotionally involved in it because you, you don't really have any counterpoint to say like, oh, this is sad because their lives were so good or because whatever is going <laughs> on. It's just like, it's, it's all bad. And there's no emotion in that, but it is a bleak movie. It, it kind of gave me this existential dread that a lot of horror movies don't get because everything in this movie just seemed so inescapable. And to the point where you were saying that uh, the clock stops at nine at the end of the movie, that nine o'clock is a recurring thing in this movie. Uh, several times it shows clocks and they're at nine o'clock. A couple of times characters will say, oh, your clock stopped and it's at nine o'clock. So it all seems to be leading to the, the time of their death. They all go because they get poisoned and they all go to hell at yeah. nine o'clock, which does that mean that th they're in the beginning of the movie when he when Shiro and um, Yukiko are talking with the parents and the clock stops at nine when Tamura shows up? Does that mean that they're in hell at that point or is that just foreshadowing? Because he calls it a bad omen when he sees it. Yeah. I'm just not quite sure. Intentionally, I think. I don't think the movie is trying to be linear in any way. I think the movie is right. trying to keep us off of our, uh, back on our heels. But it's, it, it is kind of confounding as well. It is. I, well, I was thinking, because in the movie, they mentioned that there are eight levels of hell. And I'm not sure exactly what they're, they're referring to as far as the eight, like what uh, text. Uh, as far as religious texts or 
but like in 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 Dante's Inferno, it's it, it's nine circles. So it's interesting that the the clock stops at nine, and 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 that the number nine comes in uh, into play in this movie only because nine is like a it's kind of like a big number in in like more in Christianity. You know, it's divisible by three and the Holy Trinity and all that stuff. And the, there's nine circles of hell. So it's just interesting that they use the number nine in the movie, although they're, they're only talking about there being eight, eight circles or levels of hell in, um, in, in, in this world. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm not an expert in any means. I did take an <laughs> Eastern religions class in college. Yeah. So I, I do know that eight hells is, is a part of a Buddhist, some Buddhist Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I think that that like Lord of the, the the underworld in this movie is also like a it's a Buddhist like a Buddhist god or something. Yeah, Enma. I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I think it's Enma. Um, I had it here. Where did I write it? Uh, Enma is the god of yeah. hell in the Buddhist religion. Yeah, often called Yama. He's the god who judges yeah. whether the souls of people go to heaven or hell. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> so at the end when uh, Shiro meets up with Yukiko and finds out that she was pregnant when she died. And so their child is also in hell. And their child isn't a fetus, as it would have been at this time, like maybe, like not even a fetus, it's just been a yeah. little embryo. It is a <laughs> at least several month old baby that he, <laughs> she places on the river on a lotus flower to maybe let it get out of, she couldn't care for it in hell. So she's letting it leave. And he's trying to track his baby down. And he keeps coming across Sachiko and they love each other. But then Tamura shit comes up and reveals like, no, you're related. And, <laughs> and so that's like another sin. And he's yeah. really pleased with that. But part of what made, made me think that Tamura is a demon is he keeps in hell. He keeps showing up to Shiro saying, just do what I say. Just come with me. You're supposed to come with me. And then finally, he reaches for Shiro to grab him and it hurts him. Like it burns his hand and he runs away. And then after yeah. that happens, he starts getting punished. Like he has been escaping punishment this entire time, but suddenly he's, they start like flaying the skin from his body and dismembering him. And they, they say that he, he committed the ultimate sin that he sold his conscience. So maybe, maybe he was human and he just, you know, he, he's either possessed or he, gave away his soul and he might as well be a demon now but yeah. it, it was an interesting twist yeah i'm not quite sure what <laughs> the theology of this movie is yeah <laughs> no yeah i i agree i feel the same way i think if i had more uh experience with eastern religions maybe a lot of those things that we're unsure about would make a, a lot more sense and, and i i didn't mean to look into that but i i wouldn't even know where where to start in relation to this movie but I mean, obviously, we, we pinpointed that it, there's some Buddhist stuff in there too, with the with the name of the de the uh, the demon or uh, and you know the number eight. But yeah, the, the when that that that's the thing. Like, why when he's down there, it seems like okay, he's down here. He doesn't seem tomorrow doesn't seem unfazed by anything, and then all of a sudden he's like, hey, uh, by the way, you have also committed a laundry list of sins, so you're gonna get punished. And then we see his punishment. Um, and it's just like, it doesn't clarify anything really. Like it, it doesn't explain his weird presence throughout the first half of the movie and, and just how he appears out of nowhere. And I don't know if he really has a connection to any other character besides, um, Shiro. 
Uh, well, yeah, he does taunt uh, Mr. Yajima. Um, oh, yeah, with, you're right. With the yeah. picture, a mm -hmm. weird picture that couldn't physically have actually existed of them yeah. in like when he's killing the other guy. And he does seem known like he comes to he has that weird line where he just shows up in uh, the the teacher's living room and he says, I would have knocked, but I, I, I was thrown into such a rage when you turned me away last time. So is he a, yeah. uh, like a just supposed to be a, a trickster, a tempting demon, and he's trying to yeah. tempt everybody or any like trying to like worm his way into their lives? I, I guess that's got to be it, right? That seems the most obvious. Yeah, answer. I mean, I, I yeah, I didn't think of that approach, but a, a lot of that does come into play in more uh, modern Japanese uh, horror films uh, being possessed by a demon. So it is possible that maybe to, to some degree that that that's what happened and that's why that character comes off as so strange and just it, it doesn't come, like when we think of that character we don't think of a person or a human being we think of is is this a di like a, a different type of entity and I think that's probably I mean that's the only thing that really makes sense. Yeah. So I guess I guess we can kind of go straight to the actual end. This movie. Like I was watching the timer counter as it was going on. I'm like, I think my copy might be missing something because <laughs> we're like 30 seconds away from the ending. And it seems like there's got to be at least a few more minutes left because <laughs> Shiro is going after his daughter in hell, his baby daughter. And they're on a wheel. They're yeah. on opposite ends of a wheel that keeps spinning. And there's some symbolism in there, of course, with the wheel of reincarnation or, um, the wheel of fortune even the way it could kind of look like a clock face and they're they're stuck on opposite mm -hmm. ends of it so I, i'm not exactly sure what it means because he is screaming and calling for her and then it cuts to yukiko and sachiko in white like glowing white behind them as they're calling out and looking kind of happy and like they're going away it looks kind of like they're going up to heaven and that's the end of the movie yeah and <laughs> what is his hell that he's always going to be going after his unborn daughter is his unborn daughter really there in hell that seems like a harsh punishment for yeah. somebody who hadn't even become a real person yet yeah it, it, hell is unforgiving in the story yeah but it also <laughs> does seem like it does seem like i don't know it, it i i got implications and i that maybe there would be an ending to it. Maybe this is kind of a, a cleansing fire they need to go through to get to heaven, but maybe not because it does seem like it is going to last forever. Yeah. And I mean, and it also, the ending only focuses on the two female, female characters. And like, I don't think that like, it, it seems like they could, like they could serve as the, the guiding light, but it's too late for a lot of these actually all these characters and ultimately it is too late for them too i mean it's just the ending is confusing <laughs> like i don't know if it's supposed to be optimistic or you know light at the end of the tunnel or just like the silver lining that despite this bad community there were still you know a couple of people that were good or is it meant to be kind of like an almost ironic twist in that it's taunting shiro that he's not going to be able to get out of there he can't get his daughter I, I could be, yeah, it could I be. Just, I, I should have done more research. You're <laughs> right. There might be more in 
Buddhism, there might be more that yeah. somebody who knows a lot more about Buddhism would see something in this. But I, with my Western eyes and my Western, you know, religious upbringing, cannot understand what the moral is, or even if there is supposed to be a moral for Shiro, because Shiro hasn't done that much bad. Bad. He doesn't seem like he's a horrible person. He just seems like he's kind of a little bit milk toast and and doesn't take charge when he should. Doesn't. Yeah. Little so, unlucky. <laughs> yeah, and very unlucky. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I just don't know what it, this movie is trying to say, or even if it's trying to say anything at all. Yeah. That kind of. I, I think maybe I'm tapped out. Unless you have anything else you want to say. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back with our second movie we've covered hell i think it's time we tried heaven out Ugh, i don't know if i like that <笑>映画をご覧になって当時の記憶が蘇った瞬間あなたは天国へと旅立つのですあなたの大切な思い出を一つ選んでいただけますかあの生きだけその過去の同じ瞬間だけ生きていくことっていうのはものすごく辛いことなんですけど僕にとっておじさんいつ選んだんですかまだ生きた証ほとんどの人はそんなもん残せないんだからさたまに考えるんですけどね何のためにあるんですかねうちらの仕事って死んだ人間の思い出再現する
and one of my classmates mentioned this movie. It played for a week and his response to it was like, it was interesting. It was okay. And <laughs> I, so I never made time that week and to watch it. And then I saw, I watched it on video when it came out a couple of years later and just blown away. Like early in the movie, I got a smile on my face and it didn't leave the entire time. And I've learned to not tell that to people because sometimes I tell them to tell that to people and they think it's going to be a comedy or lighthearted. And it, it's <laughs> not, it is just a very humane, warm movie that I, I always get emotional. Like I'm going to say, even now I cried watching it this last time. Yeah. Like not, not like, like ugly sobbing, but I just had tears in my eyes and I am so engaged. I love all of the characters in this movie. I think the things that they do, there's such a humanity to this movie and everything uh, Corey Ada, Hirokazu Corey Ada directed this. Everything he's done, if you can say there's one like defining principle to his movies, it is that they are very humane. Yeah, so yeah, the, the, the dead arrive in this, this afterlife uh, like kind of dormitory. It, they are social workers. It's such a very workmanlike attitude to what they're doing. And the dead are given three days they, they basically, the social worker will interview them, give them time to think, kind of guide them to help them figure out a memory they want to take with them. And then after those three days, they spend a few days recreating the memory and they film this memory for them, which is like this movie is kind of like a elegant and subtle metaphor for filmmaking and the importance of film in our lives, because their last thing is they're going to see this film and that's the one memory they're going to take. And I, I I've got some questions about how that works. <laughs> we'll, we can get into how, you know, how yeah. memory works, but while we're going, but it is, it is such a kind of a, a gentle way of, of approaching it. And, and an interesting way, because Hirokazu Koreeda had been a documentary filmmaker. He did a bunch of documentaries about the emergence of AIDS in Japan. And I think he, he takes a lot of that experience into his films, especially in how he writes. But in this film, he interviewed 500 people about 500 people about what memory they would take with them into the afterlife. So a lot of the people that you see interviewed in this are not actors. There's, there's a mix of actors. Some of them are scripted and some of them are improv, but a lot of them are just actual interviews that he gave. And he said he was surprised at how many people chose traumatic memories to take with them. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that, or like seemingly bad memories. Yeah. But also that is kind of addressed in this movie in that it explores what, how memory makes us who we are. Like even our bad memories make us who we are. Yeah. Uh, they can be defining, like not all of our defining memories are good, <laughs> but uh, even though he does, he does focus mainly on things that would seem sweet. He does totally. I, I didn't know this. I, I didn't know that he had a background in, a background in documentary because one of the notes that I wrote that the whole movie despite being about the afterlife has a documentary feel and look to it. It looks very natural. It looks like an actual uh, building that they're in. And it's, it, it has like the, the talking heads uh, interview component of it. And then later on when they're recreating the memories, it looks like a behind the scenes documentary. The, the, the camera is no longer still like, like on a tripod, it's more handheld. Yeah, well, he, he uses a lot of handheld throughout, but you're right. It kind of get, gets in the middle of the group as they're doing this. Yeah. There's a lot of like a lot of interesting touches. Like he's so concerned with the day-to-day -day lives of people more than he is about, say, telling a story. Or no, he's interested in telling a story. I just mean that he's his focus is so much on 
what makes a person throughout the very mundane little things that they do every day. He carries that through his entire filmography. I think in this movie, he associates most closely with the social workers trying to put the movies on at the end. I think, I think he would consider himself kind of a craftsman. I think he is a, a great artist, but I think he would consider himself as like, no, I'm, I'm making this thing. I'm putting like, like, I don't think he, he has any highfalutin ideas about, <laughs> about art or what he's saying. Yeah. I think he believes like the social workers do that he is capturing moments because the social workers aren't really trying to make memories that are going to fill their, their subjects with emotion or importance. They're going to just accurately represent how they felt at that moment. And that's all they care about. And they, they do it with very handmade ways. Like the way that they make that plane, Mm -hmm. like, like it's the, a different type of plane. The clouds are just strings of cotton. Uh, so I think he he really just kind of approaches all these movies as like just capturing the moments. And w- he's got a really good eye of what moments kind of define people. Yeah, I, I think he, do- he does a really good job of, of, of also getting the mood right in the movie because there is the sense that it, like everything just seems really serene and peaceful. There's yeah. very little conflict within this story. And if, if there is any con- conflict... It mostly arises from uh, issues that they're having with the rebuild, the, with the recreation of the um, of the sets and of the of the um, of the memories themselves. So it's more like a a practical uh, approach to to like practical problems. But other than that, there's no big. I mean, there are smaller arcs between the workers, but there's nothing really that is grand or overtly expressed and i think he does he really knows how to c- capture realism even when it's being set in something that's not realistic he does that really well in this because one of the things that you mentioned that comes to the to the top in this movie is the humanistic approach of the movie uh compared to jigoku where everyone is a sinner and and, and is guilty in this movie nothing you do in your life um, really matters to anyone who's there. They just want you to pick one thing that, you know, you want to feel for the rest, for, for all of eternity. And there is no judgment when you come to this place, this, whatever this intermediate between a life and the afterlife is. And it's more about finding the humanity in the afterlife because the afterlife is so uncertain to, to, to us and, we're really unsure and the director really makes this world seem nice and peaceful and accepting where nothing you did in the past is uh is held against you in in the afterlife it's like we're all human we all mess up and you know we just you know i guess we're we're trying to make you happy or feel happy despite everything else you had because you know picking one memory out of all of them and then everything else is gone. It, it, it sounds, it does sound like heaven, you know, just if you want to feel a certain way all the time and then ev- the history behind all of that is completely erased, all the trauma and pain, and just everything that goes with living and struggle and all those things and heartbreak. It's, it's a really nice feeling that this movie and, and Hirokazu does. And it's just like, it's hard to describe because it's like you have to sit down and watch this movie and immediately it'll suck you into that vortex of, of feeling 
and it does that so well and it does it throughout the whole movie. Uh, well, I'm glad you say that. Like, I, I, I like really happy with everything <laughs> you said because I feel like that is that is his calling card. There's not a lot of external conflict in his movies. There are maybe maybe two movies that have characters you could say are villainous, but even they're given they're given their moments of sympathy and dimension. Yeah. So they're not just cutouts. He is a director that makes movies that seem like worlds I would like to live in. Like I. I watched this movie and I wish that this vision of the afterlife existed. It looks so unendingly pleasant. <laughs> like, yeah, the way that the building looks a little bit chilly and is kind of a little run down. Like it, it still looks nice to be there. Like your, your day is helping people go through their memories. And then you sit there and you've got your room with your books and your nice little desk. Maybe you garden out on the, on the patio, you go and play chess you read mystery books. It just looks like such a nice, <laughs> such a nice afterlife. Yeah, that, it really is. And I have questions about how me memory works in this movie. And I think we're supposed to understand at the end that they're, they're, the act of taking that memory just means that they're going to have that feeling forever. The question I have is because our memories don't work. Like we can't look at a picture of ourselves from 10 years ago. Like you, you mentioned this. We can't look at a picture of ourselves from 10 years ago with our best friends and just look at that and remember only that moment. We remember every other moment tied in with those friends. Yeah. Every other experiences that we've had with them, whether we, we tie in, whether we speak to that person anymore or whether like one of them died maybe, or we hate one of them now. We have mm -hmm. so many things tied in that we can't ever just take one moment. Like one moment takes every other moment with it, basically. So I, I do think that, or I, I do wonder like how it's supposed to work. And, and I, I, think, I think, like I said, I think you're supposed to just understand they're taking the feeling or the emotion of the moment. Yeah, because I, I think they do address that in the movie that they're, because even I think one of the characters, the one with the Cessna plane where they're trying to recreate that moment yeah. When, don't they have him on the set and he's like uh, commenting on on the progress they're making and you can tell that he's like going back to that time and just remember he he's feeling what he remembered that feeling was like I think he's talking about the wind and how that feels on your face or something like that so I think I, I think that like in there it's less about the memory itself that they're trying to recreate and it's more of like the feeling that they're trying to like that guy, obviously he he loved flying, so like that's the feeling he always that exhilaration of flying, that's what he wants to feel, and like that that memory he chose is probably not the best one, but maybe it's the one that he it's more vivid to him because he can feel or remember how he felt, and 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 just going back to what you were saying, like there are pictures I have taken that I never remember that I don't remember taking, but like when i when i look at a picture i i'm like i'm looking at the picture and it makes me feel a certain way based on what's in the picture and it's all like these small it's like all the parts with which i think that the group in this movie is painstakingly trying to recreate it's the the small things that that build for this this whole image or, or world or scenario is what is fueling that desire to want to achieve that feeling of you know for eternity which is like in that case the the the, the airplane it's like what are the the things that 
matter to this individual that will create all of that. So it's sort of like reducing it by like the most common de denominator. It's like each memory kind of tells a lot about the person and what's in that memory. Yeah, it, you're right. It, it's, it's addressed the, the fallibility of our memories because there's the, the older guy, uh, the 70 year old guy, I think, who, or 71 year old guy who died, um, Ichiro. He can't pick a memory. He's trying to think. And so that to jog his memory, they bring him videotapes and say, these are videotapes of your life. And they're not going to be exactly like your memory. So just use them as a reference because our memories aren't reality. Our memories change like our memories of an event. You know, we can look at a picture and be like, oh, I don't remember it happening that way. And we've changed it in our memory because of how our emotions have changed regarding whatever is in that photo. Yeah. So the movie does does address that a couple times. There's one of the people that is on set that gets a little disturbed because it's not exactly how she remembers the moment being. Like she's mm -hmm. like, it's not quite right. And it's kind of upsetting her a little bit. I'm going to kind of spoil, well, I'm going to spoil the movie. Like the, this is not a movie you would think you can spoil, but I'm <laughs> only saying it right now because normally I think people can still enjoy the movies and definitely you would still enjoy the movie, but I'm going to say some stuff that I, I just want everybody to go out and watch this movie. <laughs> so like go out and watch it. But the conflict of the movie is Takashi is our, is one of the social workers and he's pretty much our main character. Although everybody's given their time, he's the one that we follow the most. And the guy that the older guy that just died, Ichiro. And even though Takashi is much younger, they're about the same age because Takashi died in the early forties. He died when he was 22. And so he's been there for about 50 years. And Ichiro and him have a connection that Takashi finds out while they're watching the videotapes in that Ichiro ended up marrying Takashi's fiance after he died. They were, they had an arranged yeah. marriage. The reason I wonder how memory works is because Takashi keeps it to himself. He doesn't tell anybody, even though like uh, Ichiro picks up on it and that I Ichiro or Takashi is thinking about leaving. And the reason he, he stayed, everybody stayed in the afterlife is because they couldn't pick a memory. They couldn't figure out a memory. And so they stayed on and became social workers. And he said, he, his idea is that he's like, I, I could never find a moment of happiness in my life. But now 50 years later, I find that I was somebody else's moment of happiness because he goes and looks at Kyoko, his fiance's memory when she died. And it was a memory of them sitting on a bench just before he shipped off to war. And he's in his uniform and that's it. They're just sitting on a bench. Ichiro, not knowing that that was the memory Kyoko chose, chose a very similar memory where he's sitting on a bench with Kyoko, that same park bench, almost 50 years later. At the end of the movie, Takashi chooses as his memory when he leaves, he's sitting on the same bench. And it's a much different context. They're all variations, though, of that same memory. Yeah. And so how much of any of this is, are they taking with them? <laughs> like, <laughs> what specifics? Is it just the feeling of being on the bench with somebody you love? And yeah. at this point, it seems Ichiro chose it because it's a moment he realized that I have been in love with this person I've had an arranged marriage with. Like it's a moment of comfort when he's, he's kind of realizing it. Kyoko chose it. It's the last time she's going to be able to see the person that she loved for her entire life. Yeah. Takashi chose it. And this is one of the moments I, I admit I cried this time where Takashi is just sitting on the bench by himself. And then in the film that's made, you see that he, his memory that he chose is him sitting on that bench by himself, looking at all the people that he met working in the afterlife. It's such a like, 
quiet moment. It's so powerful to me, though. I'm getting chills right now talking about it. That yeah. he he spent more life dead than alive, basically, right? Like more of his existence has been dead. Right. Than alive. Yeah. It makes sense that he would choose something from the afterlife, but that his memory is he just wants to take all of these people with him. He never wants to forget these people. It, it's so powerful, especially coming after um, Shiori, the young girl who's got a crush on him is upset that he's leaving. And she says, I don't, I can't stand to be forgotten by any more people. Yeah. And, and his memory, I don't know if that's what made him choose that as his memory, or if that was always what he was planning, but his memory is a direct address to that is like, no, I'm taking you with me forever, which is like such a loving gesture. <laughs> like it, it's amazing to me. I, I love this movie so much. Yeah, what what I really like about that moment too is that I think that the whole movie is is about this place being a place of reflection because not not everyone that goes into the afterlife in this movie has a had knows what what memory they're going to choose. There are people who are unsure or who are trying to decide and and the whole thing is a process and it coincides with like the filmmaking process where it's a place of reflection and what, what we choose is, it's kind of what gets put into our art. And I think that all the characters in this movie by choosing their own memory and what they chose and being part of that process is every human being is in this accepting world where everyone is their own work of art and no one is devalued for the life that they live. And in this case with uh, the, the social worker that, that died during the war, he might not have lived he might have lived a short life that ended during, you know, a battle in war, but he got to experience this great experience in the afterlife, helping other people realize what they appreciate more in life. And in that process, he finds these people that he enjoys, he enjoys their company. And, and like you said, he has spent more time dead than he has alive. So like that to him, it probably means a lot more choosing to see these people in the afterlife than anything that he probably, and it probably wasn't much, that he accomplished during his actual living life. And I think the movie, it, it is about movie magic in a way, but it's just, there's so much humanity and the afterlife itself lacks any real sort of magic or any magical components to it. Like it feels, it all feels real. And I think that's why this movie works so well because it's never detached by the fact that the setting is a fantasy instead it grounds the fantasy in reality making it more humane and acceptable just when you're yeah i guess when you're watching you accept it as this is a thing and then all those emotions just come because it is dealing with death it just comes up and it just rises and it just makes you feel a certain way and it, it and it makes you think about your own life and what you know it's almost a question for the audience as well what what memory would would you take with you you know if if you died today you know yeah. whatever age you're at and i think that because it asks a really important question that i don't think we ever really think about as we go through life from moment to moment like are there moments for an individual that we that we cherish but kind of look past them because we're just going through life and i i think that the this movie is is i'm saying a lot because i think this movie is amazing and it is beautiful and i'm on the, i'm on the same train with you i do think more people need to know and watch watch afterlife because i was really blown away by by just the the directing the style and and what 
the themes of the movie and just what was being shown to me. And I, I really did like this movie a lot. You brought it up. Might as well ask you now. Have you been thinking about what memory you might take with you? Yeah, I, I have. <laughs> you don't have to say it. You don't have to say it. <laughs> um, I'm not I, like I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like, but I know it would have to be something, something around the time where my 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 first daughter was born. Yeah, I always go back to that, like how I felt. You know, there's this saying like a, a woman becomes a mother when you know when she knows she's pregnant. And then a, a man becomes a father when he first sees his child. And I, I feel like that, I, that happened to me. Like I knew I was having a child, but it wasn't until I actually saw the baby that I was like, oh, like it's real. And, and it, was, it was a really nice and it was a really nice feeling that I always just, I always think about. And I like, and it's only because it's documented, but I remember like the day, like it was a Monday. And I remember the time because the time coincided with like, a bus line that I used to take all the time. Oh. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that's weird. That's like the bus that I take to work every day. Yeah. Uh, so like, I always remember the time because it relates to that, but it's just like that for me, I think is probably, it's narrowed to narrowed down to something like that. But I, I think that's one I, I really like thinking about. This is, a, this is a question I've asked myself frequently ever since. And for the, a long time, my memory was going to be the same because that I'd never heard that saying, but that's completely true in that, you know, women have to carry the child and men yeah. are just like, it's an abstract thought until the baby's there. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. How do I know? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will tell you after she was born and I was about to go out into my, to talk to my family, I had to stop myself a minute and I broke down crying and I, that that sounds like a sad thing to say. I yeah. wasn't like it was just so emotional being in the yeah. room as that's going that's happening, and it is a memory that for the longest time that was what I was going to choose. It, it's changed a lot over the years. I have to say, like Shiori, the young girl, the the kind of the assistant to Takashi, she like watching it as a as a younger person in my early twenties, I was completely on her side when she was talking to the one girl like. All these teenage girls, all you teenage girls want to choose Disneyland as your memory. Pick, <laughs> pick something more special. I was totally on her side. But now as an adult, I'm, I, I like look at that. I'm like, just Shiori, like she's a teenager. And it's a memory of her at a very fun place sharing good food with her friends. That's perfectly appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't be so judgmental. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't think about it that way. But I, I thought that that scene was funny. <laughs> just... But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're teenagers. Like they haven't, you know, they haven't really done much. So if, I mean, like what do teenagers love to do? Like just hang out with their friends and have a good time. So like, that's like the perfect, like, why wouldn't you pick that? You know, that, that feeling was probably amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, I'm, I'm, yeah, you're right. It's totally what I'm, I'm thinking during it. And you know, she's right. I guess she picks a very nice, sweet memory. But I also was like, don't don't shame this girl. That, yeah. <laughs> that's perfectly valid. <laughs> um, about that. So the other the other moment, like I, I said, I, I cried at this movie. The other mm -hmm. moment that really got me and it always gets me is when Takashi goes after Ichiro is left and Ichiro has gone to the great beyond. Uh, but Ichiro has left Takashi a note about like, I know. I, I, re I realized after you told me when you died that you were Kyoko's fiance that died. 
and he like says, you know, she never forgot about you. She went to visit your grave by herself every year. And like, it, it's, it's just like, well, like he says like, thank you for not talking. That was a very good kindness because he would have been, you know, I mean, he knows he come, came in second place to this guy who died. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, it, it was such a great connection. And it was so <laughs> like nice. It was such a good gesture. I keep saying nice and gesture and like humanity, <laughs> but there's such a warmth to this movie yeah. that I, I think, I think it's, it's just like a really good, <laughs> this is maybe a demeaning phrase, just a really good feel good movie. Like it makes you think, but also makes you feel very optimistic about people and the world. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I do think that it makes you think and, but it makes you think of things that are deep, but not too depressing. Like Jigoku will make you think about something that is <laughs> deep, but it'll probably make you go crazy in the process. And you start really assessing your life. Like, have I been uh, a pretty good person or have I, you know, faltered uh, there, but this movie really m- makes you think about your life in, in a different light and maybe don't beat yourself up too much. And uh, the way that, you know, life goes is the way it goes. We have people in this movie from different backgrounds that die from different, uh, different age groups. It's like, when it's your time, it's your time, but don't think about that so much. Like it, the movie is almost trying to deflect thinking about death. And it does that through thinking about memory and the things that, you know, we value and then making like an art out of it, which is really interesting. What And, and I don't know, like, it's just most, a lot of art does deal with death. And I think that this movie is sort of like the counter argument to that, that not everything has to be about death. It could be relating to death, but in a positive light. And I think that's what this movie is doing. It's not making you afraid of death, but it's making it a sort of continuation of life, a time, like I said, a time of reflection. Now you have the time to really think about the things that matter or, you know, focus on that. Oh, one other thing I really like about the movie, the 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 counselors are playing like instruments and yeah. they're not very good. <laughs> And I, I really like that because it kind of shows like that because they play with a lot of spirit and soul. And I think that's what the movie's trying to say. It's like, you don't have to be like a perfect person as long as there's good intention and, and you're trying to do the best that you can, that that'll show because that does show in, in, in there's that song that they're learning for their performance that they're just doing it, but there's so much, spirit and soul in it that it just kind of it gives it meaning that it probably wouldn't if you know if one is being judgmental about timing and and being uh on the same note uh but i i really like that moment too that that one's great because the band leader (laughs) when they play and you're right it's like it's off key they're kind of all not in in time with each other yeah but the band leader once the song's over just like claps he's like all right that was great <laughs> saying it like ironic he really yeah yeah happy with how that performance went <laughs> yeah this is yeah this is a great movie i'm so glad i i, I watched this i really i i wasn't i wasn't too familiar with the like i had heard of the director but i'd only seen two other movies and i didn't even realize that it was that like that that Corietta was the who directed this movie um, and, and I'm sure you had mentioned it. And then when I looked him up on IMDb, I was like, oh, I've seen two other of his movies. Oh, which ones? 
Um, well, the first one that I saw, I uh, it was uh, The Other Sister, I think it's called. Oh, Our Little, Little Sister. Yeah, Our Little Sister, which I wrote a review for, and I couldn't remember, and I thought I liked it. And I was going to pull it up to talk about it on, on the show, but then I realized I didn't give it a good review. Oh, well, I reread it, and <laughs> a lot of the reasons that I didn't like it are the things that you mentioned that you like about the director. And now watching Afterlife, I do want to revisit the movie. Because well, I did call the movies, I wasn't that harsh about it, but I thought it was an okay movie that was kind of pointless. And I didn't realize that that was his director's sort of uh, style style of filmmaking. Like it's very like slice of life and nothing really happens. I, I actually went to the North American premiere of Our Little Sister. Oh, it, wow. It was actually at the AFI Fest. Do you ever go to that? I, I've always tried. I can never get tickets. Oh, well, because I went my first three years that I was down here, I went because you can get free tickets as long as yeah. you, you show up. Like I, I'm, I'm fine with this. I would always show up like an hour early and I'd never have any problem getting in for any of the movies. Oh. And so I only went to a couple each year, but one of them was Our Little Sister. And I had no idea. I knew it was Corey Ada. That's why I made it a point to be there. But then they announced that it was a North American premiere and he was there and he did a Q&A. Oh, and wow. That's cool. It was really cool. But yeah. that is my least favorite Corey Ada movie. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it, it is a, a wonderfully realized little bit of nothing that goes on maybe a little bit too long. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not going to badmouth the movie because I do want to see yeah. it again because I love so much of his other stuff. Mm -hmm. But I do, I do know that I have enjoyed just about everything he's done. Even the ones that people say like, oh, it's a misfire. This is one of his few bad movies. I end up loving it. <laughs> oh, really? And, and so I kind of want to go back to Our Little Sister. Yeah, it wasn't very exciting. The The other one I've seen, though, was, I thought, very good. And I, I loved it. I might have even put in my top 10 of the year, but Shoplifters, which I thought oh, was great. Holy cow, that movie devastated me. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't, I, I talk so much about how much I love that movie. I have not been able to revisit it because I just think about that final shot in that movie uh -huh. and I get so sad. <laughs> yeah. That movie also, it like, it takes a sort of emotional turn, doesn't it? Without spoiling it. it, it like it, yes. it yeah. goes one way and then you're so invested in the characters and it, and it changes. And then I think there's like viewer conflict where you're like, how am I supposed to feel? <laughs> like, yeah. This is like, it really is a, it's a really complex movie with like the emotions set up in this movie are so like in comparison to afterlife, like I feel like there's more emotion, there's more conflict in this movie and it works. Like it doesn't detract from it. And it actually it's, it's a really powerful movie. It's a great, it is, it's a great film. He's got one more since I haven't seen, I think I've seen all of his, his films i haven't seen his documentaries but i did find that there's a bunch on youtube so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to check those oh, nice. out Nice, yeah i saw that he had a bunch of those yeah i would definitely say afterlife is is my favorite even though i think shoplifters might be a more powerful movie i just i haven't been able to go back to it yet um yeah i would really really highly recommend um hana the tales of a reluctant samurai it, it, it's his like period samurai film but it's very it, it's got that same like light-hearted good-natured vibe that afterlife oh, does yeah it's a is bit that on anything? it's a bit more like an actual comedy and i don't think yeah. it is these oh. were movies i wish i had bought them because it's so strange that they're not in print anymore he's such a critical favorite he does so well at like cans 
that yeah, well, that's so weird that there's no like like big releases for for his stuff now like a restoration or something well still walking is part of the criterion collection oh, okay and i i think i think he's he's starting to get a little bit more um recognition his latest film actually has Catherine deneuve and uh ethan hawk in it oh yeah what was uh, it called? i wanted to see that it was called the something uh the look it up okay okay uh, yeah but that one's really good. Hana, I would also suggest, um, I really like this, this kind of like ripped from the headlines one he did called Nobody Knows, which is very... Oh, yeah, deep. I remember that. Okay, it's, it's also a movie that could, could be, it could be overwhelmingly sad because it's about a mother who basically just abandons her children in their apartment building. Yeah. And so the four children are basically kind of like fending for themselves and starving and going through all these tribulations in a an apartment building and nobody ever notices is where the title gets its name from. But yeah. The, the movie is the truth, the truth. Okay. Yeah. So I would, I would suggest nobody knows. I, I don't know. I like them all. Even the ones that I think people are kind of a little bit like not too fond of, I think are great. I just really love his style and, yeah. and I love how kind of quiet and pleasant his movies are. Even when there's rough emotional things going on, he's not, he as a filmmaker doesn't seem like we keep saying judgmental, like he's not, yeah. he's not uh, like hammer you over the head with emotion. He's just like, this is it. People are, are flawed. <laughs> There's another one uh, that I added to Amazon prime recently that that is his, the third murder. Yes. That's, that good? that's one that people don't really, don't really like because it, it is basically a courtroom drama, like a, a like kind of like a law and order episode no. with, <laughs> with his style. And I oh, okay. thought it was fine. It is yeah. not. It is not one of my favorites, but I I liked it. I, I I did. Yeah. I did come away from it like, well, why was everybody so down on that? That was a good movie. <laughs> but I yeah. So I I'd recommend it. I I would just say that it, like don't expect it to be as this good or even like like shoplifters. But it's yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'm definitely gonna check out some of the other stuff. It's still walking, and if I can find Hana. Yeah, this is a real case for physical media because i have the dvd for afterlife and I, like the last i looked it was going for like 90 dollars on ebay and this was a few years ago yeah uh, i'm not going to sell it but <laughs> i i just i want to watch some of these movies and if i didn't have my dvd of afterlife i wouldn't have been able to watch it until i saw that it was on youtube and yo yeah dvd of Han hana is also $90 on Amazon. Oh, oh, damn. <laughs> there is a Blu-ray, which may not be completely... Yeah. I can't... Oh, God, $17 shipping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's not in America. Okay. Yeah, bummer. Maybe it'll come, come someday, find it bootlegged online somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want... I definitely want a Blu-ray of Afterlife. Yeah. Um, even though I think it it looks perfectly fine, like the the quality on YouTube looks perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Because the movie is kind of like a little bit uh, lo-fi anyway. So um, that'll be it for the afterlife. I once again <laughs> highly recommend this movie. I mean, I recommend both movies, but this is one that I I would recommend to just about everybody. Jigoku, you you might need to have a little bit different temperament for. <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad you I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad I got to see it again, and it's an interesting contrast. Jigoku is like the black metal album of like music. <laughs> like it's something you like, whoa, this is scary. Should I be watching this? 
Yeah. <laughs> so if that's not your temperament, you might not like Shigoku. But Afterlife, I definitely recommend too. It's it's incredible. All right, we're back in our top five. We're going to just go with afterlife. We're going to go with movies necessarily not heaven or hell, but just movies that show the afterlife in some way. And so I'm going to go first. My first choice is the British film, A Matter of Life and Death. It's also known as Stairway to Heaven in some releases, but I think nowadays, it, I think Criterion might have released it. And so nowadays, I think it is known as just A Matter of Life and Death. It's a it's filmed from the 40s. It's got uh, David Niven in it. It's another, or not another, it is Powell and Pressburger. David Niven plays a pilot who is going down uh, during World War II. As he is crashing, he reaches out on the radio and gets a hold of some uh, this American woman and basically just talks to her as he's about to die. But, you know, he ends up able to come back to life. It is a, like a really romantic movie, like all Powell and Pressburger movies. It is absolutely gorgeous to look at. Like the, the titular Stairway to Heaven when you see it is amazing for 1946. Uh, it's just a really, like, really fun movie. And I think it was a little bit ignored until kind of it was maybe maybe rediscovered a bit recently in like the last 10 years, got an actual good physical release. I, I haven't seen this one. It's great. I, and I like Press, Pressburger and uh, Powell. Yeah, I, I saw it on TCM maybe about a decade ago. And at the time, there was no release for it. It's one of those times you see a movie that's great on TCM and has never been released anywhere. Yeah. But, but now there is an actual physical release. My turn or do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, cool. Um, all right. So my first one uh, on this Afterlife list is Coco. Uh, ah. It came out a few years ago. I only said made that noise because it was almost on mine. <laughs> Oh really? Uh, I recently I, I rewatched it recently, and yeah, it's a it's a great movie. It's about a little boy named Miguel who uh, goes to the land of the dead in search of his great great grandfather, who was a legendary singer. And his family has like a, a ban on music that has been passed down from generation to generation. But the movie is really touching, and the music is great, and the way that they depict the the the, the underworld is amazing, and. I like when places establish um, rules to their world that the characters have to confront uh, or find a way around. Uh, and this movie is just really entertaining and a, a lot of fun. And it it, it deals with the, the with memory of, of 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 our loved ones and how we or um, how in some cultures they are revered or respected or remembered. And yeah, it's Coco is really good and. I think really deep for for a children's movie, and I really liked it. Okay, so uh, next one. If there's one movie that's on both of our list, I think it is going to be Defending Your Life, the Albert Brooks comedy for with uh, Meryl Streep. I have actually not seen it. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it, but I know about it, uh, and I've been wanting to see it. It's a really good movie. I like its depiction of the afterlife too. That we kind of keep getting chances at it until we we learn to conquer our fear. It's a good little romance too, a romantic comedy. There's so much funny bits in it. Like Rip Torn is great in it. It's Albert Brooks. So it's not like a gut busting comedy all the time. It, but it's like kind of a very gently sarcastic. It's, it's a movie I loved a lot when it first came out and I only revisited it recently. I don't know why I went so long without watching it again. 
Yeah, I'm going to need to check that one out. I didn't realize it was about the, the afterlife. Yeah, yeah, it, it, oh, it is on HBO Max, so I can, I don't have it oh. on DVD or anything, so I can just go watch yeah. it whenever I want now. <laughs> All right, so my, uh, my next movie is also an animated movie, and it's very recent. It's Soul from 2020. Uh, have you seen that yet? Oh yeah, yeah. We watched yeah. Uh, we watched that and Wonder Woman on Christmas. Oh okay, nice. Yeah, I I really like Soul. Uh, it was very I I like the music in it. It's you know it's about jazz, but it's about this jazz musician who is uh, still trying to to make it in the scene, but things haven't really gone the way that he's wanted uh, them to go. He he teaches music and uh, he finds he finds I, I I think it's he dies and he his soul gets trapped in this like lingo world of souls coming in and out of life. And he's trying to find his way back because he is about to have his big break. And unfortunately this happened to him, but uh, this is one of the the better movies uh, or the, one of the best movies I should say of 2020 in, in, in a weird year for movie releases, it was nice to, to watch something that was really inspiring and with a lot of, I hate to say it, but a lot of soul and just, <laughs> uplifting movie that you know in a way that you know pixar does and also with coco but it was a really good one and it's been a while since there's been a really great pixar movie so it was nice that they're kind of getting back into this kind of stuff i i agree i generally like everything pixar has put out maybe not the cars sequels yeah <laughs> i agree with you though this felt like pixar at its peak i used to say that the scariest movie or scariest movie moment is when the lights go down for a Pixar movie and you realize you're like in about an hour, you're going to be crying around a bunch of strangers. Yeah. Like it just like <laughs> Pixar movies for a while made me so oddly emotional. And this yeah. one, this one got the closest to any yeah. of them, I think mm -hmm. in Definitely. years, even though I, I think you guys uh, in your episode were, were a little bit harsh on the last Toy Story movie. <laughs> Toy Story 4. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I know you guys didn't care for it. I, I know I get Forky's a little bit annoying. I think that that metaphor is messier than the metaphors for the previous, but uh, previous Toy Stories, but mm -hmm. like gave such interesting growth. I liked the note that it ended on. So yeah, it, it it definitely seems like it's the mature version of Toy Story, and I think that's what takes me out of it because oh. even some of the other ones, it has like the childlike aspect of it, and even the third one. It's more of like a transitional phase, but you can still kind of relate to that. And then Toy Story 4, it seems like it's more, it's not about children anymore. Like it's geared towards like adults and it just yeah. feels more adult and grown up to me. I can see that. Like it's, it's geared yeah. more towards the audience that grew up with it. Yeah. I think it's also just hard to get past the absolute bleakest moment I've ever seen in a kid's movie that happens <laughs> at the end of Toy Story 3 yeah <laughs> they're all they're all holding hands accepting that they're about to be burned to death man that moment wow that is a powerful moment we're talking about toys but it's so it it hits you i i i recently watched we watched that for that episode and i i felt like toy story 3 to me like i didn't think it was that great and i thought it like really hung on to that i the idea of like oh it's the end and you know this great climax but then i rewatched it reassessed my opinion about it i think it is a really good movie but that ending hit me like it hadn't like i had never seen that scene before 
Yeah. <laughs> like it was, I was like, oh my God, this is intense. But yeah, Soul, getting back to Soul. Soul, I really enjoyed Yes. It. Yeah, it Soul. Easily could have made my list as well. And the next one I'm going to go for is neither Heaven nor Hell, The Afterlife, though. Spoilers if you haven't seen it. The Others. Oh, nice. Yeah, I almost included this one too. That movie I saw it in theaters gave me the biggest like scare of my life at that time at the end it's yeah. just like there's only one jump scare in that movie but it's so perfectly unexpectedly deployed that it like i jumped out of my seat in the theater i revisited it recently with my oldest daughter and it really holds up it's got like such a great atmosphere it's such a great gothic ghost story i i think some people have kind of forgotten but it yeah it's a really solid movie yeah, I remember really liking that movie. It's I've only seen it once, but I I always remember the feeling of of the movie and obviously the ending. Uh, so for my next one, let me pull it up. I have Wrist Cutters, a love story from two thousand six. I I'll be honest, I have not seen this since then, but I remember liking it then. Uh, this movie is about uh, afterlife. It's this place where people who have committed suicide go to and one of the characters played by um what's uh danon sassaman or something yeah yeah Yeah, thank you (laughs) shannon sassaman i don't know why i thought i would remember her name like i remember her face i'm like i think i know her name i should have written it down but she uh she claims that she's there uh by accident that she's not supposed to be there and then they go on this bizarre sort of road trip with a car that uh, has a black hole in the passenger seat. So if like you drop something there, it's gone forever. And apparently headlights that do not work and no mechanic could ever fix. It's a, it's a really interesting small indie uh, movie that I really liked discovering because I didn't know much about it. And this is when I would go to the, when I was single at the time, I would go to the movies all the time by myself and I was sometimes I was just like, I'm just going to check something out. And this is one of those cases where I just went to go watch it. There was no one in the theater. It was just me. And I was uh, really pleased with what, you know, you can do with a low budget. And this movie is a prime example of that. It also has a pretty good cast with Will, Will Arnett, Leslie Bibb, um, Patrick Fugit is the lead. Uh, John Hawks is in there as well. But uh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh I, I'm excited to rewatch it. It is. On, I'm seeing that it is on Prime. Uh, I could feel completely different about this movie, but from what I remember, I I, enjoy, I enjoyed this movie a lot. Have you seen it? I have not. So I'm. I, it was kind of a movie that was on my radar at the time, and then yeah. it, I never watched it. And it just kind of fell away. But I see it every once in a while when scrolling through, or scrolling through. So I'm gonna have to check check that out. Yeah, let me let me know when you do. Oh, Tom Waits is in it too. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember that Tom Waits. I, yeah, he's like a, I think like a cult leader or something. So um, I'm gonna go kind of the opposite of a <laughs> like <laughs> a like low budget indie. I'm going with um, this was this is a surprise edition, 1991 Highway to Hell. Oh, what's that? It's it's on Prime. It is not the greatest movie in the world, but it. It's not successful at everything it's trying, but I was so like enamored of some of the stuff that happens in it. It's just got so many cool moments. Uh, Chad Lowe and Christy Swanson, who is kind of a garbage person right now, but yeah, <laughs> they basically Christy Swanson is k- kidnapped by the devil or the hell cop is what he's called. They have an 
they're they're on this like abandoned road and this hell cop like takes christy swanson to become the devil's bride and chad lowe has to drive through hell to get her back and nice it's it's kind of comic it's got some interesting special effects it's kind of horror it's got a really crazy cast um richard farnsworth plays this old guy like just outside of hell that helps uh chad lowe like gear up to go back lita ford has a small role all of the stillers amy ben and jerry are in it <laughs> oh wow uh gilbert godfried plays hitler <laughs> like okay i have to watch this I, in the last i checked it was on amazon prime don't yeah. expect like a great movie it's just such an odd movie i <laughs> I, I like you talking about great. the car in wrist cutters <laughs> wait what was that one i just watched last year <laughs> <laughs> that's funny okay so uh i think right. you're, you're next so i have uh, next up i have uh wings of desire oh i'm <laughs> kicking myself that i didn't think of that i'm so oh i was like i thought maybe it was on your list i i i for sure thought that, that maybe this one would we would ha- have uh on each other's list no i can't believe i didn't put it on there <laughs> but i i've only seen this movie once and i think it was maybe early last year that i saw it maybe yeah, it may, it ha- yeah, either early 2020, or early 2019, or in 2019. But I, this is one because the movie is like over, it's not that long, it's like over two hours, but it's always on my to do list. And I finally got down to watch this. And the same feelings that I had watching Afterlife are sort of the same feelings that I had watching Wings of Desire. And another director, like Vim Vendors, knows how to really bring out the sort of universal emotions in, in, in such a way that it, it, it strikes a chord. Like if you're talking about this and like Paris, Texas, he does that so perfectly and wings of desire. He does that uh, really well. Um, and it's pretty much, it's about an angel who is, who uh, I think decides that he wants to, uh, to be mortal and be human. He's just kind of tired with the idea of being around forever and um, it's such an interesting, unique movie. It's it, it looks amazing. The cinematography is great. And like like Afterlife, it really it's it, it makes you think about life and and the afterlife, and what we appreciate and what we hold on to, and and just those things that kind of go overlooked. And it's told through the perspective of these two angels, which is such a unique perspective. These they're immortal, but yet they have like this sort of a knack for these little things that kind of go unnoticed in the human world because we're just so caught up in it, but it's a wings of desire. I love it. It's a beautiful movie and I, it's a criterion movie. So I'm sure um, it's on the criterion channel. Yeah. Have you ever seen the, uh, the remake? Uh, no, the yeah. what's it? City of angels. City right? of angels. I no. can't imagine it would have like, <laughs> done it justice. Uh, even though I like Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Uh, but, but plus, uh, Wings of De- Wings of Desire has a great small role for Peter Falk. I love yes. him in that movie. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah he uh, he plays himself, right? Yes, he does as an <laughs> as an angel who's been on Earth for a while. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, which this certainly really... changes Columbo. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, I love I love Wings of Desire. It's so good. It is great movie. Okay, so my last one, I'm just gonna go with a pretty fun choice i'm gonna go with bill and ted's bogus journey i is that what's that second one which one is that one the second one okay have you seen it 
Yes, I have. It's just that I, I never remember the titles of the first two. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is such a goofy movie. All, like all of the Bill and Ted's, we watched all of them this year because the Face the Music came out, and my daughter hadn't seen them, and so we watched all of them. And Bill and Ted Two, I remember being my favorite when I was a kid, and I'm not sure if I still agree with that, but it's still like held up so well. I love all of the practical effects in there. I love how goofy and good natured it is. William Sadler as death is such great comic timing in that movie. Yeah. I was so happy that he came back for face the music. Yeah. Sorry, that, you... that, that was great. Yeah. Like he's so good in that. I like William Sadler in general. Like he's such a, mm -hmm. I, I miss him in things. I just don't see him as much as I did in the nineties. You know what I saw him in recently? Um, what's it called? Uh, VFW. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh yeah, that's on my list. I need that. Is that on Shutter right now? Yes, it's, that's how I watched it on Shutter. I watched okay. it last week, and I really like that movie. So that that's my last one. Like everybody knows Bill and Ted, and if you don't, just yeah. go and watch them. All of the Bill and Ted movies are really fun. Yeah, especially I was really surprised by this last one. I was not expecting much, and I ended up really enjoying it and feeling good. <laughs> I had the same. I had the same thought. I was like, we 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 paid you know it's like 20 bucks to rent yeah. it and we still did that and i was like i don't know how this is gonna go but that opening scene as soon as i saw the opening scene and that it was it was his stepmom getting married again and like <laughs> to his brother right he's getting married to his brother yeah that i i knew just from that scene that they had chosen the right tone i was like they yep. know what they're doing with this movie and yeah. so I, I i let myself relax i thought it was really good Mm -hmm. But yeah, what's your, um, uh, what's your last one? All right. So my last one is uh, Orpheus from 1950, uh, directed by Jean Cocteau. Um, it is pretty much the story of uh, Orpheus and uh, Eurydice. I think it's it? Eurydice. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a, a sort of modern for the time retelling of that story uh, where Orpheus follows death in, in, into another realm which is supposed to be the underworld. <laughs> it is such a cool movie. I remember when I first watched it, just being blown away by like some of the, like some of the, just the, the visual tropes in the movie, like the, the bikers who are all dressed in black. They're supposed to represent death when they enter the, that portal to the underworld or the afterlife. It's like through a mirror, which is like, they put their hands through the mirror and it's like water. And it's just such a cool, uh, looking uh, effect and the movie itself I, 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 I it's, it's like a trilogy of movies but I think this is the best one out of the three and I really just enjoyed that that world that they depict that Jean Cocteau depicts in that and it's it's not it's not very like afterlife afterworld kind of thing because they I mean I guess it is they go in and out uh, he's uh, Orpheus is trying to save his wife and it's 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 just a cool it's a cool movie from the fifties that I really enjoy and it's very artsy but it's I, I dig it a lot. I need to see that. I you reminded me that I really need to see that because me and my partner both love his Beauty and the Beast. Mm, oh yeah, it's, and ugh. we we meant to watch Orpheus back when we were getting physical discs from Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and we just never we never got to it, but we really need to rectify that. I do need to see that. It sounds great. Yeah. It's, it's on the criterion channel. I like, I had time before the episode. So when I was like making the list, I, I put it on for a bit 
with the intention of fin- finishing it later tonight. But so far, I'm like, wow, this I forgot how good this movie is. <laughs> okay, so uh, that's our top five. Before we go, what do you got going on with your show? Your show is still coming out. You, you're, you've got some themes coming up, but tell everybody about Dial F for Film. Um, so, like, I, I, I've been kind of more laid back on on watching for the podcast and since probably since december um it was a tough month but i'm getting back into it we did a i did a director series and we finished it off with martin scorsese and you were on the antonioni episode which is episode 26 and then now i'm doing a favorite movie series well where i'll have a, a a different guest each week and talk about their favorite one of their favorite movies they basically just have to pick one from the 1001 movies you must see before you die anything that we haven't done on there before and uh the first episode in that series uh should will be out by the time this episode drops so that'll be uh whatever happened to baby jane which i have never seen and <laughs> i was very very surprised by by this yeah, movie that's a- i know it's weird because i know the history about this movie i listened to like the you must remember this episode about uh, joan crawford and there's this whole thing leading up to this and i know a lot about this movie but this is the first time that i've actually seen it and uh i know you i don't know when yet it might be after or before this episode but you'll be on, you'll be back as well and you're doing a favorite movie and i have different each week is going to be a different guest and i'm going to try to kind of spread out the favorite movie so i have a few episodes as backups in case there are weeks where i don't get to record something so they won't all be it won't all just be favorite movies uh, it just it might be the, the first two or three and then i'll go back to doing the the original or uh, original format of the show but other than that i mean that's really all i got going on for the next month or two on the show i'm trying to have more of a social media presence as well I'm, like making short like little videos to to promote the show and episodes from the past so i'm, I'm trying to keep busy with that and try to make it grow somehow <laughs> yeah everybody check out the Dial Up for Film podcast, uh, like basically everywhere you get podcasts, right? Apple, mm-hmm. Spotify. Yep, everywhere. So, and at Twitter, uh, Dial F podcast, give them a, give Carlos a follow. It's, uh, I mean, I really enjoy your show. Uh, Thank everybody, you, man. Everybody that's listening to this would enjoy that as well. But yeah, go ahead and give Carlos a follow, Dial F podcast at, on Twitter. We're on Twitter as well. And Instagram, both places, it's at Two Headed Pod. There's also a Facebook page out there. I uh, also want to mention Metallic Dice Games. If you have any dice or gaming related needs, check out Metallic Dice Games and enter the code two heads, T-W-O-H-E-A-D-S at checkout. Get 10% off your order. And that's going to do it from us. And we will see you again next week. Bye. I got to get a better sign off. <laughs> <laughs>